Um, hey, my name is Drew, and I get the opportunity to open up God's Word with you tonight. We are in Exodus 7. It will be on the screens, but you can turn there in your Bibles if you've, if you've got them. That's what we'll be jumping into today. Uh, have you ever stepped into a task or, or a project or an endeavor of some kind knowing from the outset that you're going to fail? Have you ever had like one of those moments where you're about to begin some sort of, some sort of responsibility task of yours? And, and I'm not talking about like you, you think it's not going to go well and you're, you think this is going to be a disaster. We all have those moments. Most of the time it turns out to be wrong and things end up okay. I'm talking about one of those moments where you know from the very beginning this is not going to end well. And then you get to the end and it turns out you were absolutely right. It did not end well. Can you think back to like the last time you had that experience, the last time you felt that kind of, of like weight on you? Some of you, I know right now, you don't even have to think that far back. Uh, you just think like Okim test last week, right? <laughs> Went into that thing, I know I'm going to bomb this, and it turns out you were 100% correct. You're absolutely only 100% you'll get an OKM all, all semester long, right? <laughs> Knowing that you will bother us, and that's exactly how it went, right? Uh, maybe, uh, maybe you go back to like high school sports, and that one time that your team, it was kind of a down year for you, you were struggling, and then you ended up having to play like the powerhouse school in your district, like the back-to-back -back champs, and, and like you know like this is going it's not a matter of whether or not you're going to lose it's just by how much that's that's what it is right and your coach like he's not going to say it no one's going to say this in the locker room in the locker room you got to pretend like you're all we can do this guys we can get it together but you all know you're not playing to win you're just playing to not be humiliated that is the whole hope right I, I still remember a basketball game in uh, junior high I was probably eighth ninth grade and we were getting just destroyed by this team so badly. It was so bad that at halftime, our whole goal shifted um, from let's win this game to the new goal is uh, we are going to try to keep this team from getting to triple digits because they were well on their way. And we ourselves are going to try to get into double digits before this game is over. Yes, you heard that right. Double digits. We had not, we had not we had not made five baskets in one full half at the time, and we were aiming for that. One of those moments we just know this is going poorly. Maybe, maybe it's a spelling bee uh, back in like third, fourth grade, and your teacher decided to do this, and you're like, why? Like, you know, every kid has that, or every class has that one kid, right? The nerdy kid that's going to win all of these things, and, and he's going to like destroy all of us in this. And so even though the teacher's trying to encourage you all to like study and we've got like a, a gift card to Brahms for the winner and you know, do your best, right? You could get this thing and you're just like, just give it to that kid over there and save us all the trouble, right? We know how this is gonna go. We know that we're gonna go into this and fail. Have you ever had a moment like that? That's, that's the spot where Moses and Aaron find themselves in Exodus chapter seven knowing they have been given a task by God and then they have been told by God that it's going to fail, that it's not going to work, sort of. It's actually, it's, it's gonna kind of work, it's gonna succeed, but it's gonna succeed by them failing. It gets complicated. 
We've been walking through Exodus, and, and for those of you guys, if this is your first time, you know, Exodus is the story of God rescuing his people from slavery in Egypt, bringing them into a new land where he will make a, a new relationship, a covenant relationship with them, and joining them. They will be his people. He will be their God. But that's not the fullness of what Exodus is all about. Like the, the bigger picture of Exodus, what Exodus is most fully about is God revealing himself. God making himself known, showing what his character and nature is like in a world of false gods. This is what the one true God looks like. And, and what we've discovered, every time we go through a different chapter in this Bible, we're learning something new about God. So, so far, we've learned that God is a God who's faithful to his promises, that he's a God who goes with us in the tasks that he gives to us. We've learned that he's a God who sees and hears us, that last week that he's a God with a strong arm. A couple weeks ago, we saw that God is a God who invites us into his purposes. That even, even when we feel weak and incapable of doing what God wants us to do, he invites us in and he has the ability and the power to use us, even in our weakness, to accomplish his purposes. Tonight, we'll see something even more amazing than that. And that is that a person doesn't even necessarily have to be willing to be used for God's purposes. That Yahweh has the power to take even those who stand against him, to take even his enemies and use them to accomplish his purposes. So what happened last week is Moses and Aaron, they go to confront Pharaoh for the very first time. The very first time to go and say, this is what Yahweh says, let my people go, and it does not go well. Here's how it went in Exodus 5, the first couple verses. So Moses and Aaron went in and said to Pharaoh, this is what Yahweh, the God of Israel, says, let my people go so they may hold a festival for me in the wilderness. But Pharaoh responded, who is Yahweh that I should obey him by letting Israel go? I don't know Yahweh. And besides, I will not let Israel go. So did you catch Pharaoh's first words out of his mouth. Who is this Yahweh you speak of? Who is Yahweh that I should obey him? That's the key question. And again, that's what we're all uh, aiming for here. In the next six chapters will be God's answer to that specific question. Who am I that you should obey me? I will make that clear. But in this moment, it doesn't look good. So now, uh, Pharaoh uh, declines, he, he rejects this request, and then he actually doubles down on the oppression that he's putting on the Israelites, working them harder. And so at this moment, actually, not only are the Egyptians mad at Aaron and Moses, but the Israelites are as well, because they've just made their life worse. And so Moses goes to God and he says, see, I told you, I told you this was a bad idea. I told you that this was how this was going to go. I told you I'm not good at this, God, that you picked the wrong person. And that's where we are at the end of chapter 6, verse 28. It says this, On the day the Lord Yahweh spoke to Moses in the land of Egypt, he said to him, I am Yahweh. Tell Pharaoh king of Egypt everything I am telling you. But Moses replied in Yahweh's presence, Since I am such a poor speaker, how will Pharaoh listen to me? And he's got reason, right? I mean, I've already tried and he didn't listen to me. Well, why are we still going at this? And then says this, Yahweh answered Moses, See, I have made you like God to Pharaoh, and Aaron your brother will be your prophet. 
You must say whatever I command you. Then Aaron, your brother, must declare it to Pharaoh so that he will let the Israelites go from his land. So God reminds Moses once again, it doesn't matter how good you are at this, Moses. It is not you yourself who is going to make this happen. I am the one doing the work. And he says this. We've already heard this phrase a couple weeks ago. I will make you like God. And Aaron will be like your prophet. I will make you, he says, God to Pharaoh. And on the one hand, this is simply, I think, a statement about how Moses is to communicate. Just as God did not communicate directly to the people, but he communicated through a prophet like Moses, so Moses will not communicate directly to Pharaoh, but he will communicate through Aaron as a prophet. That's part of what this is. But I think there's actually probably something a little bit deeper going on here. Remember, Pharaoh himself is considered divine. In Egypt, he is considered to be like one of the gods. He answers to no one, but that's about to change. Two men stand in a room. Pharaoh, the king of the mightiest empire on the face of the planet at the time, and a humble shepherd, leader of the slaves. Which one has all the authority? And you'd never guess that it's actually the shepherd. He will be like God to Pharaoh, God says here. But there's this, now, this strange wrinkle that gets introduced into the story. He says, you tell Pharaoh so that he will let the Israelites go from his land. And in verse 3, but I will harden Pharaoh's heart and multiply my signs and wonders in the land of Egypt. Pharaoh will not listen to you, but I will put my hand into Egypt and bring the military divisions of my people, the Israelites, out of the land of Egypt by great acts of judgment. The Egyptians will know that I am Yahweh when I stretch out my hand against Egypt and bring out the Israelites from among them. So God says, go and tell Pharaoh everything I said, and by the way, it's not going to work. Go tell him to let all the people go, and I'm telling you right now, he's not going to listen to you. In fact... I'm just going to add a little extra to make sure I will harden his heart so that he does not listen to you. God has actually said from the beginning, he has said all the way back in three ni- uh, chapter 319, when he first called Moses, he said, I want you to go and tell the king of Egypt to let my people go, but I know that he will not let them go. So, so God has been saying this from the beginning, but this is kind of a new level that is added here. Not only will Pharaoh not listen, but God will harden him so that he will not listen. And this is going to be a theme that's going to run through the next five, six chapters, all the way through the plagues, all the way up to the scene at the Red Sea. We're going to see this idea of Pharaoh's heart being hardened over and over again. And it raises a lot of issues and questions, which we're going to try to tackle later in in just a bit. But, But the first big question is why? Why would God do this? If God wants to rescue his people, wouldn't it make more sense to soften Pharaoh's heart? Because he can do that too. To make Pharaoh prone to letting the people go when Moses asked him to do that. Why does he instead harden his heart? And the reason is because, yes, God wants to rescue his people, but rescuing is not the only thing God wants. 
as we've said, what he actually points out in these verses what he wants. He's going to harden him, and by hardening Pharaoh's heart, he's going to, it's going to give God the opportunity to multiply his signs and his wonders and to bring the Israelites out through great acts. And then he says in verse 5, And when I'm done, the Egyptians will know that I am Yahweh when I stretch out my hand to set my people free. It's what we've been saying from the beginning. Exodus is primarily about God making himself known. And if Pharaoh says yes to Moses when Moses walks up the very first time, then the signs and wonders of the plagues don't happen. And, and, and God wants them to happen. God wants to use this as an opportunity to display his power. Why? Because God wants to show off? No. No, remember, this is all taking place in a polytheistic world a world in which everyone believes that there are all kinds of gods, and each of those gods are kind of tied to different regions and different nations, and all of them are, are somewhat kind of similar in nature. And, and so the question, when Moses comes to Pharaoh and says, Yahweh says to let my people go, the question is not just who is Yahweh, but what makes him any different than any of the other gods? And why should I trust that he's better than our gods? Because look what our gods have done for us. Look, we're on top of the world, and look at what your God has done for you. You're slaves. And so th this question has to be answered. What makes Yahweh any different from the other gods, all these other gods who are finicky and needy and moody and these gods that demand child sacrifice and these gods that don't seem to mind when kings oppress their people and all these other things? What makes him different? And the answer is everything. And he wants to make this clear that he is greater than these other gods. And he is not bound to any one location. And he takes oppression and injustice seriously. And he loves his people deeply. And the plagues will be a demonstration of all of this. And so we see in verse 8. Yahweh said to Moses and Aaron, When Pharaoh tells you, perform a miracle, tell Aaron, take your staff and throw it down before Pharaoh. It will become a serpent. So Moses and Aaron went into Pharaoh and did just as Yahweh had commanded. Aaron threw down his staff before Pharaoh and his officials, and it became a serpent. But then Pharaoh called the wise men and sorcerers, the magicians of Egypt, and they all did the same thing by their occult practices. Each one threw down his staff, and it became a serpent. But Aaron's staff swallowed their staffs. However, Pharaoh's heart was hard, and he did not listen to them as Yahweh had said. So this is not a plague, this first throwing down of the staff into a serpent. This is really kind of a little preview of things to come. This is a sparring match between the gods, if you will. Remember, the snake was a symbol of Egyptian royal power and authority. So there's significance to the fact that, that uh, Aaron's staff, that he has control over this snake. And, and as soon as he throws it down, it turns it into this serpent. And then this kind of surprising thing happens, that the magicians come in and they throw their staffs down and it be, they all become snakes and serpents as well. And we don't know exactly what's going on here. If this is just like sleight of hand and they're able to kind of perform this kind of magic trick through that means, or if there really is, the Bible almost seems to hint at that there really is actually kind of a, a spiritual power, some sort of dark spiritual power behind these guys and that they're actually able to do this thing. So at first Pharaoh is not all that impressed, but then Aaron's staff, Aaron's snake, swallows up all the others. 
It is uh, power that is greater than theirs. And this, there's something that's kind of significant to this. The, the, the Hebrew word that is used here for swallow, his, his snake, his staff swallowed up all the others, that's only actually used twice in the entire book of Exodus. Only two times. Right here. And at the very end of these next several chapters, when it says that the Red Sea swallows up the army of Pharaoh. And so what you're getting is a snapshot of things to come. A warning of what is about to happen to those who refuse to listen to Yahweh, to God. But Pharaoh's heart is hard, and so he will not listen. And so the plagues begin. Verse 14. Then Yahweh said to Moses, Pharaoh's heart is hard. He refuses to let the people go. So go to Pharaoh in the morning. And when you see him walking out to the water, stand ready to meet him by the bank of the Nile. Take in your hand the staff that turned into a snake and tell him, Yahweh, the God of the Hebrews, has sent me to tell you, let my people go so that they may worship me in the wilderness. But so far you have not listened. This is what Yahweh says. Here is how you will know that I am Yahweh. Watch. I'm about to strike the water in the Nile with the staff in my hand and it will turn to blood. The fish in the Nile will die, the river will stink, and the Egyptians will be unable to drink water from it. So this is the first of the ten plagues that we will see take place. We'll get to the other ones next week, but this is kind of the start up, and it is this attack on the Nile. Peter Enns, who's an Old Testament scholar who studies and walks through Exodus, he gives four reasons why this is a very fitting place to start for the plagues. I'm going to tell you about three of them, because the fourth one is something that is actually kind of connected to all the plagues, and Randy will get into that a little bit next week. But there are three reasons here that it is important that he starts with the Nile. The first is this. Egypt's greatness as a civilization is tied to the life-giving water of the Nile. They are in the middle of the desert. They are in the middle of an arid climate. And the one reason that in an agrarian society, in an agrarian world, that they keep thriving is because of the Nile. And an attack on the Nile is an attack on Egypt itself. Second, the Nile is the very place where Pharaoh tried to end Israel's future. If you remember towards the beginning, this was the decree that went out that every uh, Hebrew baby boy that is born was to be taken by any Egyptian and thrown into the Nile, put to death to put an end to the growth of these people. And so it's fitting that the very place where he tried to kill off Israel will be the beginning of his demise. And the third thing we see is that all of this, when we get to the end of these next five, six chapters, all of this will end with Pharaoh's army drowning in the sea. So the beginning and the end of Israel's deliverance concerns a mighty act of God using water. It's kind of a bookend to the deliverance and rescue of God's people. And so this is what Aaron and Moses do. They walk out and they meet Pharaoh as he's heading out to the water, probably for like the daily bathing, the same thing where Moses was discovered by Pharaoh's daughter long ago, probably at this moment. And Moses stands out there and Aaron stands out there and they explain what will happen and they strike the water and everything goes red. And the fish begin to die and the river begins to stink and people can't drink from it. But there is actually still a little bit of fresh water left in the land because we read in verse 22. But the magicians of Egypt did the same thing by their occult practices. So Pharaoh's heart was hard and he would not listen to them as Yahweh had said. Pharaoh turned around, went into his palace and didn't take even this to heart. All the Egyptians dug around the Nile for water to drink because they could not drink the water from the river. 
Seven days passed after Yahweh struck the Nile. So there's a little bit of fresh water left, at least in some places. And uh, Pharaoh's magicians come out and they're like, we can do the same thing. Boom. And if I'm Pharaoh, I'm going like, hey, dude, not helping. All right. I need we need a little bit of fresh water. Stop. Stop doing tricks. But he does enough of this that Pharaoh looks and goes, my guys can do the same. So I'm not impressed. And he walks away with a heart that is hard and unready to listen, just as stubborn as he was at the beginning. And that's fine, because through Pharaoh's hard-heartedness, God is about to demonstrate his incredible power. It is ultimately a good thing for Israel that Pharaoh's heart is hard, because they're going to get to see a miraculous deliverance. It is ultimately a good thing for you and I that Pharaoh's heart is hard, because we're going to get to learn things about God as we watch what he does with the next several chapters. It is not a good thing for Pharaoh because this is going to be his disaster and undoing, which brings us back to these questions again. Why does God do it? What exactly is going on here with the hardening of Pharaoh's heart? How does this work? And, and what's taking place? And, and, and how does it all kind of play out through the rest of this series of scenes? That's what we're going to talk about when we come back here in just a minute. But first, we're going to take a break. There are only two times in all the scripture where Jesus is said to be deeply grieved over something. Only twice in all the gospels does that phrase get used to describe Jesus, deeply grieved. Once at the beginning of his ministry and once at the very end. The one at the end is not going to surprise you. The one at the end comes when he's in Gethsemane. And he's right on the verge of the hardest moment of his earthly life, the moment where he will go to the cross and take all the sins of the world upon himself and suffer the punishment and the wrath that every one of us deserved. He's going to take that on himself. And so on the verge of that, he is in this uh, really deeply painful moment. And he uses this phrase, I am deeply grieved and sorrowful to the point of death. That one's not going to be surprising to you. But at the beginning of his ministry, we see this same phrase applied to Jesus. And it's interesting what causes it in Jesus. It's Mark chapter 3. And it's near the beginning, as I said, of everything that Jesus is doing. But he's already beginning to build a name for him. He's already beginning to kind of stir up this Uh, this talk about who this Jesus of Nazareth is and what he may be about. And the crowds are excited because they hear that he's doing these amazing miracles and he's teaching these incredible things. The religious leaders are not excited because they believe Jesus to be some kind of heretic, some kind of false prophet who's turning people away from the true path, i.e. their path. And so they don't like Jesus. And in Mark chapter 3, Jesus is stepping into the middle of a synagogue, which is kind of like the the Jewish form of a church. And, And he's in this synagogue on a Sabbath. And he looks up and he sees this man with a shriveled hand. And he is not the only person who notices this man with the shriveled hand. There's actually a, a room full of religious leaders that are looking at the man and they're looking at Jesus. And they're looking at the man and they're looking at Jesus. And they're watching to see what he's going to do because they consider it to be a work, a, an actual something like a, a, a to, to be working on the Sabbath if Jesus heals this man. And that would be a sin. And that would prove that Jesus is a lawbreaker. And so they're watching Jesus. And Jesus knows exactly what's going on. He sees the man and he sees them. And he decides to confront this head on. And so he pulls the man out in the middle of the room. And he asks this question. 
What is more lawful to do on the Sabbath? What do you think God wants from us on the Sabbath? To do good or to do evil? To give life, to restore a man, or to leave him in death, to leave him as he is? And he looks around at the room and he looks at every one of these people in their faces and all of them look at him stone-faced, refusing to answer that question, refusing to even go down this path with him. And then we read these words in Mark 3, verse 5, after looking around at them with anger, grieved at their hardness of heart, he said to the man, stretch out your hand. And he stretched it out, and his hand was restored. Now, the the Greek word for sorrowful or grieved is lupeo, but that's not the word that gets used here. It looks like it because our, our version just says grieved. Actually, if you want to describe like a different level of grief, uh, grief. There's this compound word that you could use, uh, silupeho, and that word is actually only used once in all the scriptures, and it's used right here, used to describe the kind of grief that Jesus has in this moment. And what is it that causes this grief? Hard hearts. Makes Jesus angry makes Jesus sad. Few things bring more emotion to Jesus than hard hearts. He hates them. He hates what they do to people. He hates what they do to his creation. And this, of course, brings up the question, if the Son of God hates hard hearts, and if his Father hates to see hard hearts, why does God harden Pharaoh's heart? I mean, we know why. We already talked about this. He did this so that he could display his miracles, so that as every time Pharaoh says no, God steps onto the scene and does something more miraculous and more amazing. We know that. What I mean is, doesn't this seem a little bit confusing? Doesn't this seem to be kind of the opposite of what God really wants. And and as I said, this is going to be a theme that runs all throughout the plagues. In fact, every time a plague takes place, you will see at the end this mention of Pharaoh and his hard heart. And so it's something that we need to be able to deal with. But as you read through, and we're going to see most of these, I'll show you a couple, but we'll, we'll read most of these next week. You're going to notice something kind of interesting. And that is that the hardness of Pharaoh's heart is described in three different ways. It's, it's not described the same over and over again. It's described in three different ways. Sometimes you will read, it will say that God hardens Pharaoh's heart. Like in Exodus 9:12, where it says, But Yahweh hardened Pharaoh's heart, and he did not listen to them as Yahweh had told Moses. Other times, though, it says that Pharaoh hardened his own heart. Like in Exodus 8:15, but when Pharaoh saw there was relief, he hardened his heart and would not listen to them as Yahweh had said. And then other times, it actually simply says that Pharaoh's heart was hard. It doesn't really say where that comes from. This is like in Exodus 7:13. However, Pharaoh's heart was hard, and he did not listen to them as the Lord has said. So, what's going on here? What are we to make of this? Who's hardening Pharaoh's heart? What's causing this? This is not an easy question to answer. And actually, every theistic worldview has to deal with this. If you believe there's a God who is active and involved in this world, you have, to, you have to wrestle with the tension between God's sovereignty and his power and ability to do anything he wants 
and human free will and choice and how those two things collide and overlap. Everyone has to be able to work through this to some degree and I admit that I do not have perfect clarity on this. I have spent a lot of time just some in the past, but especially in the last week, reading and studying commentaries and articles and all kinds of things, trying to grasp on this. I don't have a perfect grasp on this, but there are at least three things that I want to tell you tonight, three things that I think you need to know as you read about the hardening of Pharaoh's heart over the next several chapters. Here's the first one. Remember this, number one, that God is good and always does what is right. 1 John 1.5 says this, This is the message we have heard from him and declare to you. God is light and there is absolutely no darkness in him. There is nothing sinful. There is nothing wrong. There is nothing evil or bad in God and therefore he can do nothing wrong. Our tendency, my own tendency, when I come to this book is that I often come to it as though I am the judge. And so if I come across anything in this book that I don't like, something that makes me uncomfortable, well, then my natural tendency is to think, well, then there's something wrong with this. There's something wrong with what God did. But, but I want to ask you for just a second, because you probably feel that same impulse inside of you. I want to ask you to ask this question. Is it possible I'm wrong? Have you ever been wrong about anything before in your life? Yes, all of us have. And when you were wrong, do you remember what that felt like? It felt like you were actually right. You thought that you were right in the moment. All of us have had moments where we were wrong about something. And I, I want to just ask this question, what if instead of reading this through my own eyes, what if instead I chose to read it through God's eyes? What if I saw the things that he saw and, and knew the things that he knew? We know of God, that his, uh, what his character is like, that he is good and true. Ooh, and there go my notes. And we don't know anything else about him now. <laughs> <laughs> and we know that he is just, and so that he only does what is good and true and just. Actually, I, I believe that there is something kind of beautiful about this. By keeping Pharaoh from making common sense decisions, he is actually displaying some really cool things about himself. He is displaying his passion for justice. He is displaying his deep love for his people. One of the things we get to see, if Pharaoh lets the Israelites walk, as soon as Moses goes to him, then, then God just ends up kind of shrugging off what Pharaoh did. And God is not a God who shrugs off 200 years of oppression of his people. He loves them and he loves justice and he will punish all injustice one day, whether it is in this life or the next. And we see those things about God through his passion and his power in the plagues. Second thing you need to know, notice I said that God keeps Pharaoh from making common sense decisions. I didn't say God makes Pharaoh sin, and that's because of this second thing. God does not cause anyone to sin. God never causes anyone to sin, including Pharaoh himself. And this is really important. This is not a situation in which a morally neutral Pharaoh is saying to God, no, no, please, God, I want to do the right thing. I want to do what is good. Please don't make me do bad things. And God's like, too bad. You're going to do bad things. Okay, that's not what's happening here. That's, that's not what we see taking place. The text makes it pretty clear that Pharaoh bears the responsibility for his sin in this. Actually, you'll see in Exodus 9, Pharaoh himself claims that he is the one sinning. He says, I sin against Yahweh. I sinned against what he wanted to do by refusing to let the people go. 
And so he will claim responsibility himself. James 1 actually tells us this. And I think this is an important verse. He says that God never causes people to sin because it's outside of his nature. This is verses 13 and 14 of James 1. When tempted, no one should say, God is tempting me. For God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. But each person is tempted when they are dragged away by their own evil desire and enticed. So what you have here, again, is not a neutral person wanting to do good but getting pulled into darkness. No, what you have is a wicked man who is spiraling deeper into his sin. And where God could have decided to open Pharaoh's eyes to his foolishness, he instead chooses to hand him over to his foolishness and to hand him over to his sin. And that leads me to the third thing that you really need to know. And that is that when faced with persistent rebellion, God does eventually hand people over to their sin. Say that again, because that was a long one. When people are persistently rebellious to God, he does hand them over to their sin eventually. There's some scholars who will point this out, and I think that this is kind of fascinating. That you will never read, when you read through the plagues, you will not see the words, God hardened Pharaoh's heart until the second half of the plagues. They never, those words do not show up in plague one, two, three, four, or five. They only show up in plague six, and then it skips seven, eight, nine, and ten. You'll never see God harden Pharaoh's heart in the first five plagues. Instead, in the first five plagues, you'll keep reading Pharaoh hardened his own heart. And you'll also read twice in there that Pharaoh's heart was hard, but you'll continually read that Pharaoh hardened his own heart. And so there are a number of scholars that kind of postulate from this that what God is doing, that God's hardening seems to be responding to the direction that Pharaoh is already leaning, to the direction that he's going, almost kind of like, like judo of some kind, where you use your opponent's momentum against them, that as Pharaoh begins to swing this way towards God, God says, fine, and brings him all the way over as he begins to do those things. And this would actually fit with how Paul describes the process in Romans chapter 1. In Romans 1, Paul says that God works to reveal himself to people, that he wants people to know him, that he's made himself known through creation, and that he's trying to get his word of the gospel out to the whole world so that people can know him. But he also says that there's a point at which God says enough. That when people refuse to know God, when they stiff-harm him over and over again and said, I want nothing to do with you, God will eventually say enough. This is how Paul describes it in Romans 1, verse 28. And because they did not think it worthwhile to acknowledge God, God delivered them over to a corrupt mind so that they do what is not right. This pattern is actually described three times in Romans chapter 1, that people refuse God and refuse God, and so he says, fine, I will hand you over. And then they refuse and refuse some more, and he says, fine, I will hand you over. And it happens over and over again. There's this one guy, he's a, he's a commentator on Romans. His name is Frederick Louise Godet, and he has this description. Imagine that you, or we'll, we'll say me, I'll be the bad guy here for a second. Imagine that I am sitting in a boat, a small little like rowboat, and, and I'm on a river that is like rushing across. And at the end of this river, you know that there's a waterfall that is going to lead to my destruction, that I will go over that waterfall. And so you, as a good friend, stand there holding the boat, keeping me from going. But I want, I want more than anything to go. 
I want to float down the river. I want to be excited. So I curse you when you hold that boat. I yell at you, let go of the boat. I want to go. And, and you won't, reduce, uh, won't do it. Finally, I start taking my paddle and I start swinging at you, trying to get you to let go of the boat. There is a point at which you will probably eventually go, okay, I'm not going to fight you forever on this. And, and Godet says that this, this appears to be what is happening with God, that God, in his goodness and grace, restrains all of us from going darker and deeper into our sin than we, than we want to, or from going darker and deeper than we are. That, that all of us have a tendency to move towards darkness and sin, and God in his goodness restrains that and holds that, and he keeps us back from it. But there's a point when you push against him enough, when you refuse to hear his voice enough, when you rebel enough, when you swing the paddle at his arm enough, there's a point at which God says, okay, and he not only lets go, he actually says, kind of shoves you out and says, if this is what you want, if you do not want me, you will not have me. And he hands people over to their sin. And that is the last thing that you want to be in all the universe. A hard-hearted person who gets what they want. The worst thing you could be in your entire life, a hard-hearted person who gets what they want. And what's really scary is that that kind of mindset is not reserved for evil kings. Because it's not going to take long as we walk through this book together, that the Israelites, the very people that God saved, the very ones who witnessed this miraculous deliverance through the plagues and the Red Sea, that they begin to turn against Moses. And they begin to turn against God. And when things get hard, they start to wonder if God really has their best interest in mind. And maybe we shouldn't have followed him out here. And maybe he doesn't really care about us. And maybe we should have just stayed back in Egypt. And all of this will come to a head in Exodus 17 at this place called Meribah. And I'm not going to get into the details of what happens at Meribah right now. We'll, we'll get there when we get there. But there's a, a, a chapter in the book of Psalms, Psalm 95, that describes what happens at Meribah. And it uses these words to describe the Israelites at Meribah. It says this, they hardened their hearts. That is, the Israelites did the exact same thing as the king that oppressed them all those years fell into the exact same trap as him. And this is a problem that will plague the Israelites for centuries. The prophets will say repeatedly, you have hearts of stone, you have a hard heart that will not listen to God. And of course, by the time you get hundreds of years later to Jesus, the Pharisees, the religious leaders who are supposed to know God the best, they're the ones who know the word front and back. They're the ones who spend their life studying it. And Jesus is grieved at their hardness of heart. Actually, there's a few times in the Gospels where the disciples themselves, the men who spend like three straight years doing nothing but hanging out with Jesus, the disciples themselves are described as having hard hearts. And this is the very scary thing that all of us can be susceptible to this to some degree. And what makes it so dangerous is that by definition, those with hard hearts don't notice that they have them or don't care when they find out. Jim Johnson, the lead guy, uh, the lead minister at Sunnybrook, he tells this story about this time when he was going to this church in another town and he was kind of speaking there for some kind of revival thing for the weekend and hanging out. And while he was there, there was this couple that, uh, that had opened up their home and they were letting Jim stay there with them. And so he stayed there and, and in this home, th this couple, they had a son. He was either like late high school or young college age, but he was still living at home. 
And at some point in the last few years, this son had chosen to kind of walk away from the faith decided that he didn't believe any of these things that he had been told, all these fairy tales he had been hearing all his life. As far as he was concerned, that's what they were. And at some point in the night, he and Jim actually kind of started going back and forth about this, like friendly and kindly started debating some of these things and talking through all of this stuff, why he didn't believe, and Jim was giving him answers and responses, and they're discussing back and forth. Finally, it got late, and this this young man started to go up, up the stairs to his room. And as he was up the sta- going up the stairs, he turned to Jim and he said, you know, the good news is, though, is if it's all real, if this whole Christianity thing is real, God will make it clear to me and I'll believe eventually. And as he starts to walk up, Jim just said, or not. The man turned around and said, what? And Jim said, or not. You cannot simply presume on the kindness of God that you can reject over and over and over and over again and reject that and and to just presume that you will always have a heart that is ready to hear those things. And this is the thing that is really important to know. That there, a, a person can be around and even involved in the things of Jesus for a very long time. They can go to church for much of their life. They can be involved in Sunday school and camp and they can show up at things like this without ever actually taking a step forward to place their faith in Jesus. Maybe it's because they're not 100% sure if they buy all of it. Maybe it's because they want to keep their options open. Maybe they just keep thinking to themselves, I'll get to it. Like, right, I can, I can kind of do the spiritual thing a little bit, but still kind of have fun. And eventually I'll settle and I'll, I'll make the decision to give my life to Jesus. But what happens when a person plays that game long enough and chooses that they want to keep a part of their life that they won't surrender, eventually they become inoculated to the things of Jesus. Inoculated, that's, that's when you introduce just enough of something for you to build up an immunity to it. Don't let that be you and Jesus. Don't ever let your heart be inoculated, be immune to Jesus and the Spirit of God as he tries to speak to you and convict you of things. When you feel convicted for the way you've been living, when you recognize that you've been playing games with God, when you've been trying to be spiritual but not submitted to his will, when you feel like Jesus is calling you to himself on a night like this or in church or in any other moment, do not ignore that voice because there is no guarantee that you'll hear that voice forever. Now, if you're freaking out right now, if you're sitting in that chair going, oh my gosh, what if this is me? What if I've gone too far? What if my heart is hard? What if God is hardening me and I'll never be able to do the right thing? If that's you right now, I have good news for you. Actually, two pieces of good news. First, your concern is actually a good sign. If you have any bit of concern that this might be you, that means that there's a level of softness in you and so you don't have to be freaked out. The person who should be nervous is the one who recognizes their apathy who recognizes their habitual sin and only half cares about it. That is a frightening place to be. So that's the first bit of good news. The second piece of good news, and this is the really, really good news, is that this whole issue is a big part of why Jesus came in the first place. It's what he came to fix. I mentioned how the prophets would rail against the people for their hard hearts. You've got hard hearts against God. They need to change. You've got hearts of stone. They need to change over and over again. But those same prophets also spoke of a day when God was going to come and change all that and make everything right again. This is from Ezekiel 36. God says, I will sprinkle clean water on you and you will be clean. 
I will cleanse you from all your impurities and all your idols, and I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. I will remove your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. God says, I know the hard hearts in you. I know how hard it is for you to do what is right, but one day I'm going to change all that. One day, I'm going to make it possible for you to have a heart of flesh in you. And then 500 years after Ezekiel spoke these words, it happened. Jesus comes and through his death and resurrection, he makes it possible for the Spirit of God himself to dwell inside of anyone who places his faith or her faith in Jesus. And that Spirit brings life to dead, stony hearts. This is the really cool thing about Jesus. He does not just cleanse us from our sins. He does not just forgive us for the shameful and destructive things we've done. He actually renews the dead hearts that kept producing that way of living. He changes us from the inside out, and that offer is for anyone, but you've got to respond. You've got to. When you feel God pressing on you, you've got to respond. How? What do I do? What's a step? Here's one very simple step you can take tonight. If you feel God pressing on your heart, tonight, if you feel him weighing against you for something that you're not surrendering to him, whether it is your whole life or a sin you're holding back, whatever that is, I would just ask you to do one thing. Tell someone. Talk to one person tonight. Tell them the truth because sin thrives in secrecy. Hard hearts grow in darkness. Hard hearts grow from the pride that does not want to admit to anyone, let alone to God himself, I need you. I've been wrong. I need to change things. And so one of the best first steps you could take is to turn to someone by the time this night is over and tell them, I need help. I feel like I've been pushing back too far and I'm afraid of where that may lead me someday. I need help. Will you pray for me? Will you talk to me? Those kinds of things. Psalm 95, that one that talks about the people's hardness of heart at Meribah, It has these words in it, and I just want to close with these words tonight. It tells the people, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. And that is my word to you tonight. Today, tonight, if you hear his voice, do not, I plead with you, do not harden your heart. Let me pray. Dear God, I... I say these things, I want these things, but I know that it is you and your spirit that moves in us to draw us to you. And so I pray for my friends, if there's anyone who is listening to the voice in their head saying, just hang on, you'll figure it out yourself. You can get through this. I pray, Lord, that you would speak through that lie and that you would convict them and cause them to turn to you who are merciful. God, may your spirit help them see your great love and let them step out into that love and into that grace with hearts soft to what you want to do for them, in them, through them. And I ask you that in the name of Jesus. Amen.